All right, so in your notes, we have some, I put some review in there for you. As promised last week, uh, I wanted to give you the chiastic structure of the seven churches. So those are in your notes, along with the structure of each, each of the letters. Uh, and then the uh, retelling of Old Testament or covenant history among the seven churches. So if you look at that chiastic structure, you can see how it begins with Ephesus, it ends with Laodicea, and each of the points, so A and A prime, so that would be Ephesus and Laodicea, correlate with each other, uh, they relate to each other uh, in, in multiple ways. So, and it's not to say that when, when you see a chiasm that it's going to always fit real clear or there's um, really uh, parallels all the way through the seven church or all the way through the description of the parallel churches. That's, that's not necessarily what it means. It's a literary structure to, to show us how we are to read through these, these seven churches. And, and chiasms is near and dear to, heart, to God's heart, right? God loves chiastic structures like you see there. Um, chiasms are found all throughout the Bible. They are, again, literary devices, structures to be able to show us meaning, to bring out the flow of what's going on, and they're just really creative. In fact, chiastic structures are, are woven into our lives overall. We all live chiastic lives. You wake up in the morning, you probably look at your alarm clock, you get out of bed, you brush your teeth, you get dressed in some order, perhaps you take a shower, you eat dinner, you get ready for work, you get in the car, you go to work, you work all day, and then you do your day in reverse, right? You get in your car and you come home, you eat another meal, you get out of your work clothes, you put on your nighttime clothes, and eventually you might have a little snack or something, and then you brush your teeth, and you get back into bed, you look at your clock, and you go to sleep, right? It's a chiastic life. We, there's chiasm everywhere, right? This is how God has ordered creation, is chiastically, in so many ways. So these seven churches are no exception, we could go back even looking at the description of Jesus in chapter 1 as we did last week and, and follow that description of Jesus through the seven churches and find another chiasm. Or we could go even further and look at the entire Gospel of John. If you looked at all of John, it would operate kind of like the A, B, C, D. And then Revelation would operate like a C prime, B, B prime, A prime. John and Revelation together or create a big chiasm. So chiasms are everywhere in the Bible. So a couple notes on this one. In Ephesus, you see the promise to eat of the tree of life. So you have this eating in the presence of God. In Laodicea, the promise, if they repent and they come back to the Lord, he's at the door knocking. If they open and let him in, which we'll get into that in a little bit, what that means. But the promise is that he would come in and eat with them. Right? So in both Ephesus and Laodicea, we have eating a meal with Jesus. Uh, Smyrna corresponds with Philadelphia. Both are faithful churches. Nothing really said. Uh, nothing is really wrong with these churches other than persecution is coming. But we see white manna, white stone, a name, and Jesus coming soon in judgment. Or no, excuse me, that's a Pergamum. You have the Jewish threat and tribulation that is coming soon. So you have the synagogue of Satan referenced in Smyrna, and you have the synagogue of Satan mentioned in Philadelphia which is B prime. So you have this Jewish threat and persecution that is coming soon. And then Pergamum and Sardis correspond, these two, 
uh, struggle in significant ways, but there is also some similarities where you have a white manna, white stone, a name, and Jesus coming soon. And then in Sardis, you have a white garment, a name, and Jesus coming soon. Now, when Jesus says he's going to come to the church in Pergamum and Sardis, he is not coming to rescue them. He is coming both times to judge them. They don't want Jesus to come in this manner. They must repent unless Jesus comes. And as God did in Jeremiah, as they were getting ready to go into exile, completely clears out the house, does away with them. He's coming in judgment to his church to punish them. And then Thyatira is kind of at the center of, of the chiasm. It's one of the longer churches. But here we have um, a mixture of all sorts of things going on in Thyatira. But that, that kind of operates as the center point. Or we have Jezebel, Babylon, true and false uh, meals. So you have eating, but it's different. You have eating both with the Lord and also eating with um, uh, false meals, sacrifice to, to idols and so on. So anyways, that's, that's the chiastic structure there. You can look at it more and read through the seven churches in light of the chiasm. And it's, it's a lot of fun to read them corresponding and see how they connect. I also put in there a, the structure of each of the letters which I did not really get into last week, so I wanted to give you that. But each of the letters follows this basic structure where it begins with the introduction or the address to the angel of the church at X. And remember when we talked about angel here, this is not a divine being, but he's actually writing letters to the pastor and or elders of each of these churches. Okay, so it's a letter to the church. So we could say, um, to the pastor of the church at X right, okay? Then you have the revelation of Christ as our measure. So we, uh, in, in I think it was three out of the, or four out of the seven, you have this grabbing back to the vision of chapter one of Jesus and pulling that into the letters saying, this is who Christ is, and this is the measure, this is the standard, this is what you are to grow up into. You are to look like and act like and speak like Christ, we see this being played out throughout the rest of Revelation, particularly, I mentioned last week, with the voice of many waters. Do you remember that? We see this in, in Revelation chapter 1, but it's not found in the, in the seven churches. So the next time the voice of many waters comes up is in chapter 14 and again in 19, where Jesus is teaching a song to his saints, to those in heaven, and eventually all of the redeemed speak with a voice that sounds like many waters, Right? The voice of the bride begins to sound like the voice of Christ in chapter 1. So it's this calling together of the whole Christ, head and body, husband and bride, Christ and his people. So Christ is the measure that we are to grow up into. So we see the measure of Christ represented in, in each of the letters. And then it goes in, the statement that Christ knows their works, whether good or bad. There's praise and criticism that follows. Uh, he commands regarding what must be done, a promise to come and set things right, right? There's a reward for those who overcome, and then the exhortation to listen. Those who have an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, all right? And then a promise uh, of rewards to overcomers on number eight. Okay, and then uh, we also talked about how the seven churches represent not seven stages of history from the early church through today or through the future of our world, but rather it represents the history of God's people from 
Jesus all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? So we saw Ephesus represents Eden, Smyrna, the patriarchs, that is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Pergamum is the wilderness. This is after the Exodus. They are wandering in the wilderness. Thyatira, which is where we will begin tonight, is the kingdom age. Sardis is judgment and exile. Philadelphia, restoration, coming out of exile. And then finally, Laodicea, which represents the apostasy, which is the intertestimonial period, right? Between the Old Testament and New Testament, what was going on, what was happening in Second Temple Judaism as they're preparing to build the temple and it's being under construction when Jesus arrives on the scene and Jesus speaks to the apostasy of God's people in his ministry, right? So the Pharisees and so on would fit underneath this apostasy, but it would go back even further. A couple of the, just a little reminder, when we looked at Ephesus for uh, representing the Garden of Eden, we see all sorts of creation language going on there. Jesus is the one who is walking among the lampstands in the same way that Yahweh walked among the garden in the presence of his people. Judging, not in a sense of being judgmental, but rightly assessing everything that's going on. This is what Jesus is doing throughout these seven letters, is he's rightly assessing what is going on in the churches. When, G when God is walking in the garden, he looks and he says, Adam, where are you? Right? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to? He's assessing the situation, assessing Adam. Who told you that you were naked? Right? He's, he's, he's speaking into the, the situation there. We also see the tree of life offered at the end as a reward, right? And the tree of life, of course, in the garden as well. Smyrna represents the patriarchs, those who, uh, it refers to Jesus as he who has died and has come back to life. I don't know what that is. You playing the drums back there, Aaron? <laughs> Good. Good. Drum roll, please. We were looking at Smyrna, the patriarchs. It begins by saying, actually, I'll just read it for us. To the angel of the church of Smyrna, write the words of the first and last who died and came to life, right? So we have this death and resurrection sort of pattern seen in Christ, but we also see this pattern taking place multiple times within the, the patriarchs, right? Abraham himself has a death and resurrection pattern when, he, when God puts him into a death sleep in order, and then splits the animal, or he split the animals. He goes to sleep. The, the fiery pot goes between them. This is part of the cutting of a covenant. And then he brings him back to life, wakes him up, and there's a new covenant. There's a death and resurrection there. We have a death and resurrection with Isaac on the mountain where Abraham is about to crucify him. Jacob's entire life is a death and resurrection evening of death, wrestling with God, and then the morning that he is blessed. There's this constant death and life um, pattern in, in Jacob's life. Joseph's, perhaps one of the clearest, is a death and resurrection that his dad, Jacob, literally thought he was dead, right? Because his brothers tricked him. He threw him into a pit, which is again in the Bible, a symbol of death to go into the pit. Daniel does this. Jesus does this. Jonah does this. Right? So there's a death, and then he comes out of the pit, and then he is brought, if you would, into life in Egypt, but then he's put back into death, into prison, and then he's resurrected again to the point where he is glorified, second in command of all Egypt. He is given authority and rule, 
as we are promised a crown, um, or Smyrna is promised a crown. There's tribulation that is given or promised to Smyrna. Uh, he knows it's coming, but God is present with, him, with them in that tribulation. Joseph, Joseph's life, again, is one of tribulation and God's promise to be faithful to him. Joseph goes from a prison, as which is also mentioned in Smyrna, ultimately to receiving the crown, as I mentioned, as the second in charge in all of Egypt. Pergamum was the wilderness generation. Here we see the two-edged sword that comes out of God's mouth. That two-edged sword can be understood as the words of God that he speaks. Right? This is what we see playing throughout Revelation. When God speaks, he does so as a, with a tongue like a two-edged sword. And then we see in the wilderness, God gives his word to his people, the Ten Commandments, the law, the Ten Commandments, literally the ten words, right, that come from God to his people. And that word is a double-edged word. It has both blessings and curses that we see in Deuteronomy. If you obey, you will receive blessing. If you disobey, you will receive Curses, and then, of course, the hidden manna that is referenced to as a reward to this church if they overcome um, that manna as God fed Israel in the wilderness with manna for those 40 years. Okay, that's enough of overview and review. Are there any questions on that, any clarification before I jump into Thyatira? Kind of like drinking from a water hose, a Fire hydrant, a fire hose, that's the word. <laughs> Most people drink from water hoses at some point. It's not that big of a deal. Huh? <laughs> a fire hose, on the, other, on the other hand, that's a bit more of a challenge. Questions? Okay, then let's move on to Thyatira. This will represent the kingdom age of the Old Testament. All right? David... Well, Saul, David, Solomon, it even goes through the division with Rehoboam and Jeroboam, north and south, Jerusalem and Israel. The, the, the kingdom is divided. This period will take us a little bit further into that, even into really what we see with Elijah and Elisha as kind of the, the hinge that goes from the kingdom age to the prophetic age, ultimately, in, in the Bible. Uh, so here, Thyatira represents the kingdom age age, just leading up to um, exile, okay? So let's begin in verse 18, where it begins, and to the pastor of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So quickly, I want to just highlight already a kingdom theme that we see here, and the fact that Jesus is refer referred to as the Son of God. This is an incredibly political title. This is a kingdom title. This is the title that is given to kings who lead dynasties. When uh, a birth announcement would go out, for a new king that was born, there's two things that are often associated with this birth announcement. One is, this is euangelion. This is good news. The gospel is going out. It's an announcement of good news that a king has been born, and this king 
is a son of God. Not necessarily saying divine, though some of the kings got it into their minds that they were divine, uh, wanted to have months named after them and so on. Um, however, this is a title that is, is used for kings. They are sons of God, okay? So initially, when we see this word son of God, we can um, think of kingdom sort of language. There are verses throughout the Old Testament uh, that speak of the Davidic the Davidic line as being those who will come as sons of God. Um, 2 Samuel 7.14 says, I will be to him a father. This is speaking of, of the king. I will be, and this is God speaking, I will be to him a father and he shall be a son to me. Right? This is ultimately seen as prophetic for Jesus, but initially this is referring to the king of Israel. Psalm 89, he shall cry to me. You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. This is the king crying out to God. You are my father, okay? My God, the rock of my salvation. Psalms 2, verse 7, this is a big one. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Again, a prophetic, messianic text, but initially when it was written, it was referring to King David, right? He's the king, the son of God. And then in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we have this euangelion, good news, coming together with the Son of God, uh, describing Jesus particularly. It says, concerning his Son, who was descended from David, this is kingly language, right? Descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God, in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul sees these themes throughout the Old Testament that the kingdom and the son of God, the king, uh, all are linked together. And when Christ comes, he is truly the son of God. And he is the son of David, which means that he is king. Okay? And then it goes on to describe Jesus who has eyes, uh, eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What, what images come to your mind maybe when you, when you see this? Eyes of fire, feet of burnished bronze. What are some ideas that come up in your mind? Daniel's vision in chapter two. There we go. Yes, when it refers to, to a, the burnished bronze element, absolutely. What else? Eyes of fire. Obviously, this is described in chapter 1, right? So I'm not, I'm not looking for chapter 1 where we see the prophetic, glorified vision, symbolic vision of Christ with eyes like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. Any other thoughts? Okay. Good. That's good. Fire is often associated with God, right? The burning bush, of course, is one of them. The pillar 
of smoke and fire, but these are all messian, or, uh, mosaic, priestly, wilderness, if we're looking at the, at the seven churches, phenomenons. What, what about in the kingdom part? Where do we see fire with the kingdom, with the temple? And feet like burnished bronze. Ah, okay. So the sacrificial system, the altar, which is actually the bronze altar. Ah, so we have a burnished bronze altar in the temple where the sacrifices would be laid upon and it would be burnt up. The snake was bronze. I wonder what's going on there. So we've already seen in chapter 1 that Jesus is kind of described, not kind of, he is described as a tabernacle sort of man, Right? with, with the, the lampstands are present, uh, the water is present. There's all sorts of stuff present within this tabernacle. And of course, John's language of him dwelling with us in John chapter one and, and so on. And this, this temple that is Christ being in our presence. And I think we have another, another aspect of that here. And, and the feet of burnished bronze is, is absolutely one of the, the big pieces. So in the temple which looked different than the tabernacle. I'm going to try to do this um, to, to, to scale <laughs> according to Second Chronicles. But you have, if you were to walk into the temple, if you were to walk through the liturgical process of the temple as a worshiper, you walk in and the first thing that you see are the feet of the temple, the burnished bronze altar where sacrifices would be offered. And then in the temple, this is, the temple is a glorified version of the tabernacle as well. Okay, so it, 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 it functions in, in the same sort of way, but we move from one degree of glory to the next throughout the Bible. And ultimately, we will see the church itself is the new temple, which is far more glorified than any of the others. In the tabernacle, you had the altar, and then you had the basin, the wash basin, right? In the temple, this is, I think, about 10 times the size as it was in the tabernacle. It's massive. The the altar itself, and then you don't have one wash basin, but rather you have a chariot of water. You have 10 basins. They were square, but I'm just going to put circles. And they work kind of like this, and they're all connected. They're all on these, these pillars and, and so on, and they're connected. And it was an idea of this is God's chariot of water that would go through. So it is an incredibly powerful cleansing, washing that could take place in the temple, right? It was incredible. And then after you, you come through the, the chariot of water, you would enter into the, the holy place. And the holy place and the holy of holies operated something like this, which is very similar. So let's say the holy of holies is here. And this time, instead of having one lampstand, you had 10, there's five on each side. Okay. A glorified version of the tabernacle. And you had the table of showbread, which I will say was somewhere right in here. You still have the altar of incense, which is even bigger here. And then you had Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies there. Okay. So, what we see taking place here is actually feet of burnished bronze. And what would happen when the glory of God would come into the temple? 
how would it come into the temple? Big flame of fire from, from on high, right? Hebrews, which is referencing the sacrificial system throughout, talks about Jesus as the temple, and he is an all-consuming fire. This is how God is described. He is one that is always burning, always purifying, always seeing. And then to understand that the temple and the tabernacle function in a very, it's a, uh, in a bodily form, right? It is to be what, what Christ comes to fulfill, and we are to grow up into. We are ultimately living temples, and, and essentially, as we've seen before, you know, you have a body here. We have the head now that is on fire, you have the ribs, you have water flows, you have the feet of bronze, and so on. So it's this body sort of structure that's going on in the temple. So what we see here in Revelation is John absolutely knowing all of this, and he is connecting this for us. He is the temple man. From head to toe, he is on fire. He is the one who is able to see with flames of fire. The glory of God resides upon him from head to toe. And, and just a little side note, in Ezekiel 47 we have the next iteration of the temple. Um, Herod's temple is Solomon's temple just upgraded. It's better, right? But it's, it's not a new temple as far as in a new covenant. Ezekiel's temple that he prophesies is one that is far greater. And do you remember the water that flows out of the temple in Ezekiel's vision? And the tabernacle's a small basin that purifies, cleanses, and the temple, it's this water chariot, right, with 10 of them. But in Ezekiel's, it's a trickle of water that goes and eventually covers the entire world. <laughs> and wherever it goes, it cleanses as well, right? So, and, and, and there's all sorts of other aspects that we can connect to this from Pentecost with flames of fire coming down and resting upon the apostles and, and so on. But this is what's going on symbolically in the mind of John as he's referring to Christ as the one, the word of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze, particularly within the kingdom aspect or the kingdom age, Thyatira. Okay? Any questions on that before we keep going with Thyatira? Okay, we will continue then. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 19, I know your works, your love, your, uh, your, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. So he's commending them. I know what you've been doing. I know your love. I know your faith. I know that you have been enduring strongly. Well done, right? However, there is a problem in Thyatira. It says, but this I have against you. Church, you've been doing well. However, there's a problem here. You have tolerated that woman, Jezebel. That woman, Jezebel. If you really want to get into a good argument with your spouse, call her that woman, Jezebel. You know, one of the theories, and I say this because one of the theories of, of who this Jezebel person is, there's really, there's, there's lots of them, but three main ones is this is just a symbol of a culture that's going on in church, unchecked sin in the church, sin of sexual immorality and kind of a culture or spirit of Jezebel from Ahab's wife and Elijah and all of that. She was a miserable person. We'll talk about her more in just a minute. Or it was actually a woman in the church that is 
leading men astray into sexual immorality and, and promoting the, the culture of sexual immorality from, excuse me, from the Roman Empire into the church and saying it's okay to practice these sort of things. There's benefits to it and so on. And, you know, what, what person would say, oh, that sounds awful when the temptation is pulling them into it and it's justified by God, right? So it's this twist. It's a sexual twisting of what God has designed. So it could be an actual person doing that. And then there's, there's another theory that this word woman, gune, is also the same Greek word as wife. And there's some that say the pastor's wife is the problem in the church. And he's saying, you have allowed your wife to run the church and she has led all of this stuff into the church. So those are kind of the three different um, ideas of who this woman might be. She calls herself a prophetess, right? She calls herself a prophetess. So this could be going, thinking about a prophetess and prophetesses typically come from the Hebrew faith, from the covenant people, prophets, prophetesses in the Old Testament. So she is actually a Jew that is leading them into this Again, perverted mixed worship of Roman cult and Jewish cult and bringing it together and, and turning it sideways. Um, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat, here's that eat that we talked about in the chiasm, to eat uh, food sacrificed to idols. And then he says this, I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. The Lord has been patient toward this church. I think that this is more of the spirit of Jezebel going on in the church rather than an historical woman. It could be. I just think as we read through it, it makes, I think it makes the most sense to see it as the spirit of Jezebel is present within the culture and they're adopting things from, from the culture into the church. And the Lord Christ has given the church time to repent, Right? In other words, they've been warned, they've heard faithful words, maybe from other pastors who have visited, but this pastor is failing to repent for the sins of his church. So then he says, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Now this is, um, there's, some, there's kind of a, a play on words and an irony going on here that this Jezebel is seducing people, bringing them into her bed in order to... Um, uh, to lead them into sin, to continue this uh, sin of sensuality and sexuality and perversion within the church, calling people into her bed. Now Jesus shows up and she goes and says, basically, she wants to get into bed with people. I will throw her into a sick bed, <laughs> right? I'll lay her in her bed and, and it will be a sick bed. And this will be a bed that will be to her judgment and to her harm, right? So I will, I will throw her onto a sick bed and those who can commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. This is an eye for an eye sort of judgment that's going on here. But there's still time to repent. And then he goes on to say, and I will strike her children dead. Children here referring to the followers, those who are following the lead of this Jezebel character. I will strike her children dead. In other words, all those who follow you will likewise die on this sickbed. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. That's one of the reasons I think it is referring to it, the kind of the spirit of the age rather than just a person, that 
He will search within the minds and the hearts of the people to find that, that Jezebel um, within. And I will give to each of you according to your works. All right, before we wrap this up, I want to uh, just give a quick overview of Jezebel and why they're taking her name from the Old Testament and applying her name to this church and to the Christians. Jezebel is the wife of Queen or King Ahab. He acted more like a queen in this situation. She wore the pants in the relationship. And she comes in from a Baal-worshipping um, kingdom and religion, marries Ahab, comes into the covenant people of God, and she brings with her Baal worship, really to make daddy happy, right? This is an alliance thing. That makes sense with her father and so on. So she brings it in, and Ahab, a weak man, a pathetic man, in fact, because of his weakness and patheticness and his, his willingness to just let Jezebel do what she wants, uh, the Bible calls him the most wicked king that Israel had ever seen. So she brings in Baal worship. Not only that, but she round, rounds up the prophets of Yahweh and kills them, right? She kills them, slaughtering prophets, and she's hunting them down actively. She doesn't want anybody testifying against her, which is what prophets are to do. So she kills the prophets of God. Elijah shows up, a prophet who's not hiding. In fact, goes right face to face with Ahab, speaks about his wife, calls them to repent, calls a curse of God down on the land. So there's no water, right, for three years. And Jezebel is wanting to see, I mean, she is seeing red with, with Elijah, wanting to see him die. Uh, eventually, there's the and we go into the story of Elijah from, from there, but we see the story of Elijah with the battle with the prophets of Baal. You remember the story with the altar and so on. The rain is lift, or the, the drought is lifted, rain comes back down. Ahab says he repents, he really doesn't. Um, Jezebel then he sees the rain come, sees Ahab come down from, from the mountain. This is how the Bible kind of lays it out. Um, comes down from the mountain and then speaks to him and is still really angry at Elijah. So she says, I want Elijah dead. She pursues him and he, he leaves because he sees no change, right? So he walks away. This is when he confesses or to, to God and, and, and laments saying, am I basically the only one left? I'm the only faithful one. And God says, calm down, Elijah. You know, I still have 7,000 that have not bowed the knee, right? There's a remnant here. There's an underground church going on here. And this underground church is what, is what the faithful remnant looks like really throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Um, that there's a faithful group that come from the, the church, if you would, of Elijah and Elisha and so on. Elijah starts to retire, if you want to call it that. His career is about over. And he gets this vision from God. God talks to him, talking about these three swords that he's going to bring. One will be Elisha, a new Elijah, a new prophet that would come. At this time, Ahab repents and then dies, but the repentance, nobody knows. It's ambiguous. It's hard to tell if he's being sincere or not. But then we jump ahead to you have Elisha, who takes up the mantle of Elijah, and then you have Jehu, right, who's going to be the new king, right? And he's kind of the king of the subversive kingdom that is going to overtake um, Ahab's house because all of Ahab's descendants are, are cursed to die. So, uh, Jehu is a fantastic character in the Bible. You want to read a great story to your kids, read the story of Jehu, who drove his chariot fiercely. Everybody knew who he was by the way he drove his chariot. 
So Jehu is on this mission to destroy the descendants of Ahab, and he's on his way to find Jezebel. This is where she comes back onto the scene. There's another part in there that she um, actually murders Naboth, if you remember that, with the vineyard. That's a, a horrible story, but that just shows her, her evil heart yet again. Um, Ahab wants his vineyard. Naboth has it. He doesn't want to sell, so she has him killed so Ahab can have the vineyard. Fasting. Fast forward again to, to Jehu. He's on his way to find uh, Jezebel, and he gets there, and he calls, and there's a couple of servants that are faithful to him. They throw her out of the window. She falls, and she blows up when she hits the ground. It says blood splattered everywhere. And then dogs came and ate her remains to where all that's left was her head, her, her hands, and her feet. The rest had been completely devoured. And then there's this prophetic piece that plays into this as to why the dogs came. And the reason that the dogs ate Jezebel was so that there would be no, no tomb for her, was one, but also said that the memory of Jezebel would be dog droppings in the field. That's, that's who she is. And the Hebrew is actually quite explicit when it talks about dog droppings, right? It is, it, that is who Jezebel is. She is this horrific, horrible, murdering, seducing, sexually perverted woman who actually becomes queen of Israel and leads them into Baal worship and all sorts of evil, um, which they don't ever recover from until after exile, right? That's what leads them in large part into exile. So when John or Jesus is saying, you have a Jezebel in your midst, the spirit of Jezebel, this is a serious deal. This is a big deal. You are an evil, wicked church because you are not dealing with this. In other words, he's kind of calling the pastor Ahab. You didn't deal with your wife like you should have. And now, pastor, you're not dealing with your church as you should have because you have this Jezebel that is leading people astray. Big time warning to the church. Okay. And then he speaks to the faithful remnant, the 7,000 that didn't bow the knee. It says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not lay on your, uh, do, uh, to this, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And I'm, just being faithful at this church is difficult with this temptation of this Jezebel cult that's going on. But I know some of you are being faithful. I'm not putting any other burden on you except to, to hold on to the truth, right? Just hold on and do not leave the truth. Hold fast until I come. Okay. Um, any questions on that? Any questions on Thyatira? Go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Correct, yeah. So it's kind of the, the, the scene of what was going on in Israel can be applied certainly to, to the church. And it can be applied to churches always, 
can be applied to Exodus church, right? If there's something going sideways at Exodus that's leading people astray, and then there are a few that are holding true to the word of God and says, I'm not going there. That's, it's, a, it's a remnant sort of thing, but not, not in the um, objective kind of official covenantal way that, that you might think with the Old Testament. Yep. Good question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's yeah, with, with Dagon, the head is shattered, the authority is gone, the hands um, are shattered. It's, it's, he has lost all of his power, essentially, is what's going on. You have a head, hand, and foot connection with the priests, right? Aaron's sons, they're to anoint the ear and the thumb and the toe, this whole body anointing. So when, when that's what's left, there is, um, I'd have to do more more thought on to maybe the particulars of Jezebel, and I don't, I don't remember the particulars, but generally it would be to say that her whole self is, is destroyed and gone, right? You have hands, but no arms. You have feet, but no legs. You have a head, but no neck, right? So it's, it's a false, maybe a false sense of authority at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, let me see here. We're missing a couple of verses on, on the slides, so what, what I want to do is read them. So we made it through 25, so let me read 26. All right. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Okay. Give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even if I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, one thing I want to point out in these verses is in verse 27. Well, 26 also says, To him I, I will give all authority over the nations. Um, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And then it talks about smashing pots. What does that sound like? Rod of iron, smashing pots, one who rules with authority. But the he here that he's referring to is not Jesus, which is another one of those totus Christus sort of, sort of things. He's speaking to, to that, the one who is faithful or those who are, those who are faithful. What's that? Okay, that's, I can't see who said that. Oh, back there, Chris. <laughs> oh, well done, Aaron, well done. Yeah, so you have, the, you have the pots that are being broken when Gideon goes to war and the trumpet's blowing and all of that. That's, yeah, that's, that's good. That's a fascinating story. They're kind of recreating a Sinai moment with smoke and fire and crashes, which is like the thunders. In other words, the glory of God is about to destroy the enemy. Good. So that, that's, a, that's a good one. But I'm thinking more of a passage that we see this sort of language come up in is in Psalm chapter 2, right? This messianic psalm of Christ's authority and kingship. It's in Psalm 2, 8, 9. It says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That will, kind of, that, that will correlate 
to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations, right? And he will rule them with a rod of iron and with earthen pots and broken pieces. To the ends of the earth, their possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, right? So you have this messianic prophecy in Psalm 2, which is used in Acts, speaking of Christ, and in other places. And then here you have it used for the overcomers, the one who is faithful, the one who stands strong, that they are brought into Christ's work, conquering work. The church goes out, and we, as Paul says, we are to tear down strongholds. We are to smash them apart with the, with the iron scepter that is the authority of Christ. We are to speak as Christ speaks with a voice that sounds like the rushing of waters, of many waters, right? That we actually embody the messianic authority as the body of Christ on earth. This is what he is saying. It's difficult now. Stay faithful. Hold on to what is true. And this is what comes to the church. The church will move forward in victory and in conquering as Christ the Messiah is the victorious and conquering king. Okay. Any other thoughts on Thyatira before we move on to Sardis? We have three more churches to get through. Yes. It's in Asia Minor. Yeah, so that's like um, northeast of, of Jerusalem, Israel. Is that correct, Kyle? I'm, northwest. Yes. It goes towards the east coast. And so, no, I'm just kidding. Yes, modern-day Turkey. <laughs> Good question. I had a map on my screen today I was going to put up on, on the uh, TV so you all could see where the seven churches are. So I looked up what Kyle mentioned last week as far as them making a, a loop and as usual, he was right, and, which is really interesting that Christ dwells in the midst of the churches, in the midst of the lampstands, and they, like Israel, if you would kind of make a circle, um, and if Christ is in the midst or a part of it, then um, there's some cool connections there with the tabernacle and the way Israel camped. Good. Okay, let's move on to Sardis. Exile. All right, let's begin. Chapter three, verse one. And to the angel of the church of Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That is the, the seven stars is the seven um, pastors or the holistic he is. He is ruling his church and the seven uh, spirits is the spirit of God that is at work holistically complete, right? He is fully present with his people. We see all that in chapter one. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead, <laughs> right? You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. What sort of church might have a reputation of being alive, but is dead? Any thoughts on that? Sardis has the, Yes. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer. One who does not believe. You have a lot of churches that on the outside look like they are doing great. They are alive, big, massive buildings. It's like, my goodness, they have a reputation of being alive. But if Christ was to walk in and see what was going on, as he does with his churches, as he dwells in the midst of the lampstands, he walks and with those eyes of fire, he judges and he discerns. He could easily say to a lot of churches today, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have all sorts of 
um, programs. You have all sorts of finances. You have beautiful buildings and so on. But yet, when I come and visit, you are dead. He goes on in verse 2 to say, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So it's not completely dead. It is, it is dead, but there is something that he's saying, strengthen this, right? In other words, there are probably some in the church that might still hold on to the historical Adam, <laughs> right? Or might say, yeah, the, the resurrection, that much is, we do believe that that is true. But the rest of it, we don't care about. We just need that, right? There might be something that they're holding on to. And he's saying, there's something there. Whatever that is, strengthen that, <laughs> Right, pour into that, focus on that, expand that, see how that has implications all throughout your life. Okay, strengthen what remains and is about to die, though that is also on its deathbed. It is about to wither away and die. For I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So as he has walked around this church and looks, he says, nothing is complete. It is false in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received. I'll go back real quick. This wake up I mentioned last week, Sardis was one of those uh, kingdoms, those those, uh, cities where the castle, its empire, its uh, stronghold was unconquerable by reputation, right? Except for two, two times. It was conquered twice. But the reputation was believed by its own citizens, including the guards, who said, you know what? It is such a waste of time for me to be sitting on the wall watching because nobody can take our castle. The Acropolis is up really high on a mountain. It's all built into a mountain. So they said, we're not even going to worry about it. So if you would, the guards fell asleep on the job twice in their history. Twice it was taken over because the guards were not watching. Right? So he's, he's, he's using the, the history of Sardis to help them understand, you too need to wake up. Right? You have been conquered before because you were sleeping. So now you must wake up. You are dead, he says. So wake up. You need a resurrection. And strengthen what remains. I already read that. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember what you were taught. Remember what you heard. Keep, hold on to that. Keep it, don't deny it, don't send that away, but take it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So this is Christ coming in judgment. He will come like a thief, like perhaps the spies that conquered Sardis, right? They'll come as a thief, and you will not know when it happens. Yet, you have... Still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So even in this church, who have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead, your works are not complete, there are some, right? There are some, he sees, amongst you who have not soiled their garments, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What do you think he means by soiled their garments? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They have they have morally failed. They have spiritually failed. They know it, right? As as he said, I have what I've given to you, hold on to that. You have it. 
and what remains, strengthen that. So there is truth there, yet they do not walk in light of that truth, for their garments are soiled. The word soil just really means dirty, impure. It can be used of all sorts of different dirty matter, right? Um, but there's, I think there's a symbolic export to this as well that we do good just to pay, spend a couple minutes on. First is the spiritual, which, which I think is absolutely correct that Kim was talking about. Um, they have become so secularized, they've become so comfortable with the world around them that they've adopted it. They've contextualized the gospel to the nth degree, trying maybe to reach people who, are, who hate God. So they try to become like those who hate God, which is a really strange thing for the church to do, right? Um, and in doing so, they are, they are becoming impure. They are soiling their garments. You know, there's this big movement right now. We're about to have another conference within the um, it's been supported by the PCA, and it's kind of birthed out of the PCA, which has been historically a very conservative, godly, theologically robust denomination. But in the midst of it, you have this movement called Revoice, which is um, trying to give quarter to and celebrate um, homosexuality and transgenderism and gender dysphoria and all sorts of stuff. So they have this conference where they invite all of these gay, quote-unquote, Christians to come, and they celebrate their homosexuality, and they say, we can be gay Christians, and we celebrate this, and as long as we don't break, you know, the, the big law of physically acting out on it, it's okay to identify as such, it's okay to have intimate relationships, it's okay to live with, you know, different pronouns and all of this. This is becoming something that is gaining a lot of traction within uh, the PCA and even the world around. It's this reach out into the culture to say, how can we um, they, they even say, how can we bring queer treasures into the kingdom of God? That was on their website. How can we do this? So they're trying to reach out and be conformed to something that is ungodly, that is sinful, in order to reach them, right? So there's all sorts of confusion going on. This is, they have soiled their garments, right? They, they have tried to contextualize themselves to death in a very spiritual way. So that's, that's one way of soiling your garments the other, there's a symbolic power to it as well. Um, let's see. If we were to, st okay, the priest's garments, right? Linen garments. The priest is to wear a certain kind of clothing. They're, they're to wear linen garments and no wool. The reason you don't wear any wool is because priests are not supposed to sweat, Okay? They're not supposed to sweat. We see this in Ezekiel 44, right? Priests are not supposed to sweat. This is why you wear all linen, no wool, so you are sweat-free. And why would that matter? Well, if they sweat, they could, I don't know, maybe get pit stains on their garments, and they would look soiled. In, in part, that's true, actually. Don't sweat. But why is sweating wrong? Why would that be impure? Why would that cause their garments to be soiled? Any thoughts? When's the first time sweat is mentioned in the Bible? Adam's curse in the, in the garden. That he would, by the sweat of his brow now, he has to work the earth. Sweat is a result, not all sweat, but some sweat, is the result of the curse. It is, it is a constant reminder. If you guys are out mowing the lawn, or you ladies are out mowing the lawn, or whatever it is, and you start sweating, you can say, that's the curse, right? The reason I feel this way is because of the effect that sin has had on humanity. There's also, do you remember the, the story of the king 
Uzziah, who goes, who rushes into the temple wanting to offer uh, a sacrifice of incense, and the, and the priest say, get out of here. You can't be here. This is not for you to do. This is in 2 Chronicles. And, and he, full of pride, thinks, you know what? I'm such a great king. I'm even better than the priest. God has blessed me. I'll go in there. I'll offer this. And they're trying to rush him out. Now, he's not wearing linen. He's not supposed to be in the holy place. And then as they're trying to push him out, he's saying, no, I want to be here. And do you remember what happens to him? On his forehead, leprosy. And they say, oh my goodness, get this guy out. And then they, there they physically take hold of him and rush him out. Now the thought of that, it doesn't say it explicitly, but the, the symbolism matches up, is that you go into the presence of God and you're not wearing linen and you start sweating from your forehead. The curse of that is impure and nothing impure is supposed to be in the tabernacle. That's why you go through that whole um, chariot of water <laughs> to be purified before you go in. Um, yet he walks in unpure with soiled garments. He starts to sweat and leprosy breaks out. It's just a sign of what's impure. So that uncleanness, that leprosy, that is used all throughout the Old Testament. In Leviticus, particularly, we see if you touch, and there's, there's at least three levels of, of seriousness when it comes to being unclean. And unclean is not the same thing as sinful, right? You can be incredibly unclean biblically, ritually unclean, and not have sinned, right? So, so we have to distinguish those two things. But if you're driving down the road in your cart, and there's a dead cow in the road. You say, oh, I need to move this in order to get by. So you get out, take hold of that cow, and you drag it out of the way. Maybe you and your friends. <laughs> right? Samson was the one driving on the cart. Uh, <laughs> you pull that thing out of the way, you have now touched a dead animal, and you are unclean until that evening, assuming you wash. You have to wash first, right? Ritualistically, this sort of washing and then you are unclean um, until you wash until that evening, right? So those are two things. You have to wait till evening and you have to wash in between. And then that evening, you'll be good to go, right? However, if you're walking down the road and that cow is there and you say, man, I'm hungry. And you reach in there and you carve yourself a ribeye, assuming it was just killed. You hit the cow, okay? That's what happened. You hit the cow. <laughs> you carve out yourself a ribeye, you cook it and you eat it. Now you've eaten an unclean animal because it didn't die the right way to eat it. And there's still blood in there, so you didn't drain it right. So you've touched it, so you're unclean until evening. You just have to wash. But now that you've eaten it, you have to wash, and you have to wash your clothes. Your clothes are now at the next level. So you have to wash yourself, and you have to wash your clothes. Okay? And then that, that evening, you'll be good to go. You're clean. Everything's fine. However, if you're walking down the road, and there's a dead person in the road, and you have to move this person. People are way more sinful than animals, right? Uh, you have to move this dead person out of the road. Now you've touched a dead corpse. And now you have to wash your body and your clothes, but you're not clean for a week. You are deemed unclean for seven days, okay? Each time, not the first, when they just moved it, all you have to do is wash your body, but that second level of offense against purity laws is to say, even your clothes have to be cleaned. And then the worst is a whole week, right? So when we see this happening in, in this letter, these soiled garments, we can kind of grab all of this language of garments and unclean and purity and so on and say, okay, so what do they do about it, right? If they're unclean, how is it that they will then walk in 
white again with clean garments. What is their hope? You have to be washed, right? Each time, every time you're unclean, a bath is involved. So what is the wash in the new covenant? We are unclean. We are people who have been unclean. What is the wash? Baptism, right? You're baptized. You are ritualistically cleansed. But baptism is a, likewise, it's an act and a symbol of a reality, which is you are baptized in the triune name, and it is a symbol of Christ's work, right? So you are baptized by water. You are washed. But what you're being washed with is not just water, but the blood of Christ. So in, in Revelation 7, verse 14, it says this. It says, I said to him, sir, uh, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So how is Sardis supposed to get white clothes again? Do they need to be rebaptized? No. They need to confess and live according to their baptism. What their baptism declares of them is that you are supposed to be washed by the blood of the lamb and you are to live faithfully as a covenant member, as one who has been baptized into Christ. This is how you cleanse your clothes. This is what it means to, for them to, uh, to walk with me in white, for they are worthy to walk according to your baptism. If you live Contrary to your baptism, you live with soiled garments. You are ritualistically uncleaned, and you need a wash. And what is the wash? It is Christ's work memorialized by your baptism, and that calls you to live faithfully, right? Not as one with soiled garments, sweaty garments, bloody garments, whatever it might be, but it is one to live faithfully according to your baptism. And it says this. Oh, that was, I had Revelation 7, 14. If you didn't see it, there's Revelation. Nope, that's not Revelation 7.14. There we go. All right, due to time, we're going to move fast. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So those who conquer will be this is more like a future tense sort of thing, will be clothed thus in white garments. Those who conquer, you live your life faithfully according to your baptism, though we still constantly feel the effect of sin, right, in our lives, even though we are Christians, even though we have been baptized, even though we've been washed with the blood of Christ, we still, our sin is ever before us. We still need to confess. However, that day is coming, if we conquer, that we will be fully clothed not just spiritually, but actually, where all of the impurities are taken away, the sin nature is taken away, and we live for eternity in the presence of God with these white garments as one who has been washed by the blood of Christ. And for those, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. There's a lot we could get into that, but we'll come back to the book of life later in Revelation. Okay, any questions about Sardis? Did you talk to me about that? Someone talked to me about that just recently, actually. I think so. I think Sardis 
this idea of waking up is that the disciples in the garden, who he says, stay awake and pray, that they keep falling asleep. And they actually kind of embody what's going on in Sardis. Sardis is like the disciples in that moment who can't even stay awake long enough to pray with Christ. So that's a, that's a very good connection. Very good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. And, and two ways we can look at the garments. And, and baptism, again, is some, one of the things that symbolizes this, is garments have of the mark of both authority and sonship. Right? If you are a son, you are to put on that garment. And then, like in the case of Noah, do you remember that his sons, after the sin took place in the tent, that they walked backwards with the garment? The faithful son does, but the, the ham removes the garment. This is a removal of authority. Basically, he's putting it on saying, I'm the, I'm the king of the family now, right? That's, that's ham's deal. So the other two brothers take it. They walk backwards and then lay it, lay it back on their father to say, no, you're not. He is. And then, so that's authority. And then sonship is, is one. Where we see with Joseph, uh, Joseph's garment, he had the best garment. He was the most favored son. So, so going back to that parable, yes. And, and the prodigal son, right? When he comes back, he's given... New clothes, new garments, so good. Anna. So, yeah, yeah, I, I did not actually touch on it, but that, that is, that is the, the situation there. So when Israel is in exile, their garments have been soiled, and now they have been brought into the, typically the culture or the sort of culture that they have already been assimilating um, into their own lives. So they become what they are by going into exile. They are put into uh, Babylon, Syria, whatever, but the Babylonian ex, um, exile, um, they are to, to live there. But he says to those who are faithful, like, live but be faithful to God. But most of Israel at this time was not. You, you hear the, the phrase that the 10 lost tribes of Israel, right? Those are the, the, the northern tribes that went into exile and they never really came out, right? When Cyrus gave the decree and they could go back and build a temple, like the, the people who came out, that, those were the faithful ones. Most of Israel stayed there uh, and those 10 tribes, and they, they show up a little bit in the gospel, so they're not completely lost, but they become so assimilated into the culture um, that they, their garments were never washed, so the warning to this church is don't, don't be like that. Don't be like exile Israel who did not live faithfully but assimilated. Okay, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Revelation 3, 7 says, I think my slides have gotten messed up. And to the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I don't think, hold on one second. Let me go back to my passage. I'm looking at my notes and I might have the wrong verse here. No, that's correct. Okay. All right. Man, I don't have it. Okay, I'll have to do it without the, 
the actual verse up on the screen. Okay, so if, if, you're, if you have it in your notes, the verse. No, I just gave you the things. Okay, so in your Bibles, look at verse 7. Right? To the church of Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the keys of David. So the key of David, this is, we see this in Isaiah 22 with stewards of the Davidic covenant. The, the keys were taken from the unfaithful steward. I don't remember the names right now, but given to the, to the faithful steward. And you have this idea that these keys um, are, are covenantal keys. They are keys that give access to the presence of God. Okay? So there's, there's the idea of gates and keys and guards and so on. And it's referring to Christ. He is the one, the true one, the holy one, who has the key of David. He is the one who is the keeper of the covenant. He is the one who is the door. He is the one that has um, access to the Father. And he can open this door from whom, for whom he will. Right? Um, these keys to the covenant or into the presence of God is, again, a theme that we see all throughout the Bible. Okay? We see it initially in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam is given the keys to the garden. He has access to God, and it is through him that as the priest of the garden, as the king of the garden, that any of his kids would ultimately come into the presence of God, which the garden is like a temple, right, where God dwelled. Yet when he sinned, that key is taken away from Adam. And do you remember who it's given to? The key looked like a big sword that was on fire, Right? to the angel, right, is given to angels. And then Hebrews tells us that angels are the ones who actually mediate the old covenant, right? They, they, they are the administers um, of the old covenant. The law is given through angels to the people. The angel of the Lord, Jesus, when he shows up in a theophany, it's in an angelic sort of way. Angels are the ones that have access to the Father, and if people want to come into the presence of the Father, they have to go through angels, Okay. This is why priests were dressed up as angels. We talked about this last week. So angels were the gatekeeper, but the new covenant, when it comes, we have a new Adam, a new gatekeeper, one who is Christ. He is the one now that has the key. He is the one who has unlocked the door to Eden. He is not only the one who holds the key, but he himself is the door, right? John talks about this. He is the door, he is the gate, um, and so on. He is the way, the truth, the life. So Adam is replaced by cherubims. Cherubims or angels are replaced by Jesus. And then who does Jesus give the key to? Matthew, you remember this? To Peter. He says to Peter, you have now the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's in Matthew 16. So when he gives them to Peter, he's actually not giving them away. He's just giving them really to his body. He operates amongst the lampstands. He's present always. He's the head. We are the body. It is still the whole Christ that administers the covenant. Um, so when it comes to access to God, it is through the key holder. It is through the gospel, the teachings of the apostles. It is through Christ. It is through the church. Okay? And then in verse 8, it says, oh, actually, I didn't finish reading verse 7. It says, uh, he has been given the, the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, right? So if Jesus opens the gate and says, come in, there's no one who can shut that. And if Jesus shuts it, there's no one who can pry it open and get in themselves. Jesus is the key holder, his, 
and his people, the message of the church and so on. Verse nine says, I know your works, behold. And remember, this is one of the faithful churches. They're, they're doing a great job. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Right? He says, I have placed before you the open door. Salvation is for you. You, it, it, is, it is wide open. The, the, the key of the covenant has unlocked access to God for these faithful ones. Um, for you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. And then he speaks to, about those, uh, or to those who oppress the church in verse 9. He says, I think I have nine up here, yeah. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, that is the Jews, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Now when it's, he says, they say that they are Jews, that is faithful covenant-keeping Jews, but they're not. Right? They are Jews, but they're not of the true Israel that, that Paul talks about in Galatians. Uh, they are not of the family of God. They lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. We see this in Romans as far as, as the, the Gentile church, those outside of the Jewish church. As they get saved, the, Israel becomes jealous, and they come, and they see that God is working in and through the nations, and, and eventually they will come and bow before Christ and before, uh, it says before your feet. And there's something really interesting here that we don't have a lot of time to get into. But when Israel would worship, they would go and they would essentially bow before the Ark of the Covenant. Even today, right? They go to the Wailing Wall where the, whole, the Ark would be and they, they bow and worship. This is part of it. And the Ark of the Covenant was the footstool of God, right? His throne is in heaven and his feet are resting on the Ark of the Covenant. And they would bow at the feet of God. So now in some mysterious way, Jesus, again, identifying himself with his people, is saying they will come and bow at your feet. In other words, if they want to worship God, they have to be at the feet of Christ. They have to be a part of the church. We too bow at the feet of Christ, right? So he's saying you are connected to Christ. You are brought into the very body of Christ, and they will bow at your feet. Behold, I have made them come bow at your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this is big because when the... Uh, when the temple is destroyed in roughly five years from when this is written, the Jews will have no place to worship. And then they'll look and see God's faithfulness to the church in Philadelphia and say, oh my goodness, God has been faithful here. He truly does love them. This is something that we see happening, even historically, um, when you follow God's faithfulness to his people through that season. Uh, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trials, this hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Hour of trial is the great tribulation, which is the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which is coming on the whole world, speaking of the entire old covenant, the Jewish world, going back to the synagogue of Satan and those who are oppressing them, Okay. They are going to be judged. Their whole world is going to collapse. Yet for you, Philadelphia, I will, I'm going to spare you from that tribulation and those horrors. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name 
of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. Now, the, this is a beautiful passage here. He is saying, I will make you, or I'll make him, the one who conquers, the faithful ones in Philadelphia, I'm going to make you a pillar. And what is the pillar of? Of the temple of my God. And what temple is that? Well, he goes on to, to say, it's a temple in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So Jesus is even identifying himself in some mysterious way with this temple. But you, Exodus Church, if you walk faithfully before God, he will make you a pillar in the new temple. And what is this new temple? Exodus 21, or excuse me, Revelation 21, verses 9 and 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, speaking to John, hey, John, come with me. I will show you the bride. The bride has had center stage for a couple chapters here, right? I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. In other words, he's telling John, I'm going to show you Philadelphia, Sardis, those 7,000 that didn't bow. I'm going to show you Exodus Church. I'm going to show you whatever faithful churches you have grown up in and, and that God is doing in the world. I'm going to show you the bride, right? I'm going to show you what the bride looks like. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. This holy city Jerusalem is the same new Jerusalem here that comes down from God out of heaven, right? So he's saying, if you are faithful, I'm gonna make you a pillar in the new, even greater temple than this one, where this is no longer a chariot of, uh, a chariot of water, but this is a stream of baptismal water that has flowed to the, all the nations, purifying all things in Christ. This is no longer a sacrifice that we put animals on, but this is the cross, right? And this whole access, we actually become lights, and this whole access, this is communion as well, um, we have access in Christ right into the very Holy of Holies, right? This is the church. This is why it's kind of, even in the Old Testament, shaped like a body. This is what we look forward to. We are a pillar in this new temple. Okay, we are out of time. Next week, we will wrap up the seven churches with Laodicea. Are there any questions on any of that? Anna? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. And, and here, here's why. It's because of how it un, unfolds the different chapters of the Old Testament, right? So if, if we, I was thinking about this earlier today as I was driving my truck. It'd be a lot of fun to do an Old Testament survey using the seven churches, right? Just, and, and that's to a certain degree what we've done, but expand more of what's going on in the Old Testament. And you could just wrap that narrative of God's covenant faithfulness throughout. And that is not blocked off into seven completely separate things. There's absolutely overflow one to the other. So yeah, I think that's a good observation. Other questions? I saw somebody else raise their hands. Thoughts? Okay, I'm going to close this in prayer and we can be done.
Lord God,